0: Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, I love you, I love you, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting us, and being resilient warriors. I love you, Dub Nation. Guys, this is going to be an amazing episode because, as you know, we are one of the only shows that highlights female veterans and female first responders. And this is going to be an amazing episode, especially if – you struggle with PTSD and want to change your PTSD into PTSG. If you don't know what that is, make sure you you listen to the show. She's a, for, she's a young lady, is a former military police officer, uh, first responder, and now she's changing the world by telling her story. Deborah, what is up? Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. That was fabulous. <laughs>
0: So, I love it. And by the way, first before we you get started. I got to thank my brother, Michael Seguru. He hooked us up and he's the one that actually got us together. So, Michael, I love you guys. If you don't know Michael Seguru, check him out. His new book is off the chain. So definitely check him out. So, Deborah, first question I'm going to ask, because I do have a traumatic brain injury. And if I don't ask, I forget. What is your definition of resiliency?
1: Resil- well the basic definition is a, a, uh, bouncing back and but it's a little more than that to me it's having all those tools to when something traumatic happens to you um not going down that deep dark hole uh kind of you know saving you using tools and getting you back to maybe not where you were before the trauma but close to it
0: I love it so. We're gonna we're gonna hop into DeLorean. We're gonna get into going to the Wayback Machine. Uh, <laughs> tell us, you know, where you came from, where'd you grew up, and a little bit about your military service?
1: Oh, well, I was born and raised in Sacramento, California. I still live in the area. Um, uh graduated high school in 1985, uh, joined the California National Guard in nineteen eighty-six. And started out as a communications technician, uh, fixing radios and the such. Um, And then became a military police officer around the time of Desert Storm. Uh, Never went over to the Great Sandbox in the East, but, uh, you know, stayed home and took care of the kids that I had. Uh, At the time, I had one one son of my own and two stepsons.
0: All right. So, so let's hop even before, you know, let's hop a little bit back. Um, <laughs> oh. What was it like growing up? I mean, joining the military, not only as a as a military police officer, you know, eventually, but also a female. And back in the 80s, because I, I, I went in about the same time you did. It's a it was a different game that it is today
1: it was a very different game there was a lot of what would now be considered toxic masculinity um you know the fact that we were the what what do they call it the weaker sex quote unquote um that we couldn't do things the same as the guys um which uh in the group i was in we we proved them all wrong um But it was a, it was a different time. We were, you know, you wore skirts to formation, you wore high heels with uniforms. Um, You know, it was just, we were coming out of that fifties mentality and finally breaking through into what, what now is considered just, you know, you're just a soldier, not a female soldier, not a male soldier. You're a soldier.
0: So, you know, because, I've had plenty of uh, females veterans on. We're one of the only shows that actually highlight female veterans. And I know um, a lot of them had to deal with a lot of idiots and morons. Oh Um, gosh, yeah. So, you know, how was, you know, back then you know, a lot of a lot of, you know, talking about um, you know, sexual um, any kind of, anything like that it wasn't really talked about. Everything was like hush hush so um how did you go through that and you know and dealing with idiots like that back in the day
1: well uh, yeah a lot of sexual harassment and things like that whoa hello there we go um what i i don't know how i i just kind of became one of the guys i don't know how else to explain it um (laughs) Growing up, I had more male friends than female friends anyway. So I kind of, it was just, you know, I I just hang out. And I became friends with them to the point where a lot of them were protective of me, like a little sister. So if somebody was messing with me, they would make sure that that person got shoved aside or, you know, told to leave me alone. So I, I think I benefited a little bit from that where... A lot of women didn't didn't have that, you know. There was a lot of sexual. There still is a lot of sexual assaults in the, in the military. So, but I think I was lucky. I never came across that.
0: Okay, so now because my I spent over twenty years in in the National Guard, it's a whole different animal to be uh, being a citizen soldier than it is to being a active duty soldier. And what yeah. I, a lot of people don't realize, you know, you hear that one week, week in a month, two weeks out of the year, total bullshit uh, because sometimes you'd have drill back to back to back. And if somebody was getting married, it was guaranteed on your drill weekend. Uh, <laughs> yes. But also you, you became family. You became you know, your group became family because you would see them at the local Walmart. You'd see them all around town. So what was it like being a citizen soldier for people that don't know what it actually really is?
1: Well, and back back in the 80s too, we were just coming out of all the hatred of the military from Vietnam. So we were overcoming that also, um, breaking through and, and making people proud of their military again. Um, but it wasn't... I don't know. I don't know. It was, it was a lot different. I think, you know, you you didn't go out and say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in the national guard or anything like that. Though I did get accused at work of wanting weekends off, (laughs) not wanting to work the weekends. So because I had drill or, or my two weeks or, or whatever. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't, I, I quite enjoyed it you know but but at that time also we had looming over us um you know desert storm the beginning of of that and then also um in california we had the rodney king riots so i did go to those uh back in 92 and that was at the same time i was going through the academy to become a dispatcher in sacramento so that was
0: so okay, now you you said you did six years. Um, yes. You'll never hear me say only six years because if you if a person has done one day and raised their hand to protect this country, then I give them all my props. There's no such thing as only. So, but you did six years. What was your thought process in getting out? And well, what what was your transitioning like? Because a lot of us that get out. I got hurt on duty, so I didn't get out the way I wanted to. Um, Like my friend Sergeant Nick talks about, when when you step off base, the military doesn't give a shit about you. Your phone stops ringing, you no longer have the camaraderie, and you don't longer have a mission. And a lot of us, like me, end up with a pistol in my mouth because I don't have a mission anymore. So tell us about your thought process in getting out and also what your transitioning was like.
1: I think mine was a little different um, because at the time uh, we had Desert Storm going on and I had just come back from from L.A. And I had young children. Um, Their dad was in the process of going over to uh, Saudi Arabia at the time. So. I think my thought process more at the time was I wanted to make sure my kids were stable, and didn't have both parents leaving, so I decided to just not not re enlist, and stay out. But I think also the transition I was um, working for uh, as a dispatcher at the time of my transition, so I went from one one group to the other. I didn't have that, that sense of loss as much as uh, other people may have had.
0: Okay, well, so before we even get started, I, I want to thank our sponsors. As you guys know, I was with GNC for over 30 years. I was in, with uh, in the military for over 23. Um, I loved coffee. I liked pre-workouts, but they all tasted like ass. or they'd made me go to the bathroom like five minutes later. So I came out with my own called vertical Momentum Coffee. I know you guys have seen it, and high-energy uh, high, high energy coffee tastes amazing. It's all veteran, hand-roasted. And the best part of it is each time you buy a bag, we're going to put up 12 veterans and their families, take care of them for one year physically, mentally, spiritually, financially, at zero cost to the veteran. So, guys, if you love coffee with a mission, check out our coffee and I'll get you that information. Also, guys, the veterans, we are the number one minority in the United States. Only two to three percent of the population has ever served. So, guys, if you hire a veteran, you are getting the best of the best. Even if a veteran served four years. They've invested over four hundred thousand dollars into getting that uh, soldier to be a leader. So you're going to get four hundred thousand dollars worth of leadership just by hiring a veteran. And also, if you're if you're a company, you get on average ten thousand dollars a year for just hiring a veteran. And also, if you hire a disabled veteran, it's even more. And if you need upgrades to your to your your facility. They're going to give it to you for free. So, guys, make sure that you're hiring a veteran. And if you are looking to hire veterans, MacFabs Solutions is actually going to teach you how to hire a veteran and why to hire a veteran. So, guys, if you're if you want to get your company veteran ready, let me know down below by using the word veteran. So, let me ask you, Deborah, you know, you you get out of the military. Why did you not why did you get into dispatch? And not wanting to get on the streets.
1: I think primarily it was because of my kids. Um, Because being in military police, I I got that sense of it's dangerous out there. And with my husband at the time being in the military, we didn't know if he was going to get killed over there in Saudi Arabia or not. So um, I think it was safer, as far as I was concerned, to be on the other side of a phone rather than the other side of a gun. I, and I know that may sound kind of odd to a lot of people, but that's my, that was my sense of thinking at the time. But I also had a sense of service. And being a dispatcher, you're still serving. You're serving the public. And that's what I wanted to do.
0: Now, one of my best friends um, now, he's a retired law enforcement officer. His, his mother was a, was a dispatch uh, from the local police department and for over 20 years. And I have seen the effects of, of what it had on her and had on the family. Uh, because I realized that if you're a police officer on a shift, you might get three, four calls. If you're answering phones in a dispatch, You might get 50, 100 calls. And a lot of it, from what I've learned, like I said, I've never done it, but that a lot of it, there's no closure. Correct. And a lot of it probably leaves a person wondering, what happened? uh, What can I do better? So I'm thinking that dispatchers probably have a, a much, much higher level of struggling with PTSD, depression, anxiety just because of that fact. What are your thoughts?
1: I I think it's overlooked by a lot of departments the the mental health for for dispatchers because we do feel like the the unsung heroes, I guess you would call us. We're we're the forgotten. So when you have an officer involved shooting, we're not thought of first. They don't realize that we're also affected by that. We're affected by the, the phone calls that we get with that person on their worst day that's screaming at us on the phone. We're affected by the mom calling about the child that needs an ambulance. We're affected by, um you know, soup to nuts. We're Where the guys on the street, like you said, go one two three calls they have to deal with one call at a time that we give them and they have to finish it where as soon as i am finished with that phone call and put in a call for service to be dispatched i'm on to the next call so i could be answering at at sacramento police department i think i answered 200 calls in one eight-hour shift where and put, and put in maybe 100 calls for service. And then um, oh, I was released from Sacramento Police Department on probation and got hired with El Dorado County. So with El Dorado County, the slowest day at Sacramento was their busiest day. So it was kind of nice. I went for to a slower department. But even then, I grew with the department. But with them, El Dorado County... Because we were so rural, we dealt with a lot more than just what the city did. We did soup to nuts. Um, We dealt with urban. We dealt with rural. We dealt with national, you know, national forest, uh, search and rescue. We also dispatched for Department of Transportation and animal control. So I was essentially doing more there in in the last 27 years of my career and nobody remembered that you know we're we're the ones that are answering those calls and dealing with those calls and going through all this stress but nobody is giving us the tools to deal with that stress and nobody's sending us to uh, they do now, but, um, to critical incident stress management that I think should be a requirement for everybody that's a first responder. And even in the military, we need to know how to deal with our stress. Um, the, I believe there's one, one dispatcher that I know of that has committed suicide this year. And granted, it's not the same as as veterans or those on the line, firefighters or police officers, but they have to remember we're also first responders and we're being forgotten.
0: And, and that's, that's
1: and that's, you that's you
0: know. why that's why we're having you on today's show. <laughs> but you know, for me, like once I knew we were going to get together, I started binge watching. And I started watching shows on TV, nine one one dispatcher. I, I'm a big nine nine one one fan. I love the show, but I'm I'm I was more in th- listening to more the the dispatchers, and it's amazing how you guys have to be on your toes.
1: Oh, absolutely!
0: And you have to be sharp. So how do you guys be? Because I'm sure that there's certain they give you certain parameters, but then there's certain times where you're like, I never heard of this. <laughs> this oh <is> no- yeah, <laughs> every so, day. <laughs> So, you know, so what is that like when you are, you know, when you're a rookie getting started, what was that like taking that, you know, first couple calls?
1: Oh my gosh. My, well, my first call at Sacramento was a suicide call where mom found her daughter dead. So yeah, that's, you know, into the, out of the frying pan, into the fire on that one. Um, that, that was tough. That was very tough. And, um, you know, and then luckily I was still in training when that, ha- you know, you have a trainer that sits behind you and does, and, and helps you along. But, you know, when I was going through those first couple weeks of, of training, it was nice because I had a really good trainer that would sit and say, okay, you know, and talk me through it and tell me what I did wrong and what I did right, but didn't allow me to sink. Into that deep, dark hole that that could have been and, you know, kept me kept my morale up going through that. But then, you know, you go as a solo person and holy moly, there's just the things you hear is for me.
0: I, am you know, my my spiritual gift is I'm an empath. So for me, I feel everybody's pain. So. I would not be good at that whatsoever because I'd be crying right with the person on the phone. Uh, but, you know, like you said, you were in Sacramento at the time and I'm sure sometimes things kicked off around the area where you lived. And I'm sure you're thinking, Oh my God, are my kids. Okay. Is everything okay by me? Did anything stuff like that ever happen to you?
1: Um, no. Uh, Cause I worked for the city and I lived in the County. So <laughs> that was kind of nice. Um, I learned a long time ago never live in the same jurisdiction you're working in. Um, so even when I moved uh, my job to El Dorado County, I still stayed in Sacramento County, um, just so that I didn't have that fear. A lot of people, though, lived in the in their in that county, and um, there's a when you live in a rural county and you're a cop or dispatcher or whatever, um, people always come to you first rather than calling dispatch when they should be calling dispatch. They, you know, they'll call and say, well, my neighbor's a cop. And it's like, well, that's fine and dandy. But, <laughs> you know, it just I, I never really had that that fear um, except for uh, maybe on nine eleven, I did. 'Cause I was we were just ending our shift and we saw what was happening and we didn't know where the next one was. And living in the capital city um of California, um that was that was kind of scary. So I was calling my family to let them know what was going on, waking them up, getting them up and um I think we had a couple of terrorist acts at, at our capital. I know one somebody tried to run a semi through the governor's office at one time Um, but generally speaking I'm I'm not fearful of my family as far as what I was hearing and stuff you know Um, but I would come home and maybe give my kids a hug and teach them that you know hey there's not good people out there and just be alert you know (laughs)
0: Now, one of my one of my best friends. He's he's a, a prosecutor now, but he he was working um, investigations, and he would do homicide. And he used to tell me he'd come in the store and we'd just sit and bullshit because he knew he could talk to me because I was a veteran. So we pretty much seen the same things. He says, "You know, my wife asked me how my day was yesterday, and I just got back from a quadruple homicide involving children." And I can't tell her how my day was. He said, sometimes it gets very lonely being a first responder because you really don't have anybody to talk to unless they're another first responder. And then when you retire, he's like, sometimes you're just left alone with your thoughts and a bottle of whiskey and a revolver in your hand. So how did you deal with those days when you know, you know, whatever happened that day that you really can't talk to somebody at home because they don't need to be hearing that stuff.
1: Well, I didn't talk to my kids, but my husband, we were, um, and it's my husband now. Um,
0: and he's got a, he's got an amazing name, by the way. I love his name.
1: My husband. Yep. Richard Green. Oh yes, Richard. <laughs> yes. Um <laughs> He, um, but he's, he's been my rock and he has, um, um, he listens really good and lets me vent. Um, and I I think that was a big help to, to my longevity at the, in my career was having him to kind of tell what was going on. Um. I know down the, down the line, I kind of isolated myself a little bit towards the end. Um, but in the end, I finally opened up to what was going on. And, and um, I think I was really lucky having having him. As far as friends, though, a lot of my friends didn't understand what kind of stuff I was going through. So I tried to, um, my rule was when I was driving home, leave it at the county line. So I'd pass that county line and work stayed there. And then I tried to decompress. I had an hour commute uh, for most of my career. So that was kind of nice. I would have that time to decompress on my way home.
0: Okay. Now, you know, I was talking to somebody on on my show Monday and a lot of people, no matter if you join the military, if you're first responder, if you're an athlete, a lot of us don't realize that there's a shelf life. You know, yes. we all have a shelf life. I don't, it doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> but when it comes to that end of shelf life and you know it's time and you have to hang up that uniform, it's really tough for a lot of people. So what was it that made you decide it's time for me to hang up the uniform and I need to get help.
1: Well, it was kind of decided for me. <laughs> so it kind of started back in 2015. I had a uh, open heart surgery to correct a, um, a malformed heart valve. So I have a, a new valve in my heart. And at that time, uh, you know, FMLA gives you 12 weeks. So I had my 12 weeks of, of off time and came back to work, I shouldn't, shouldn't have come back to work so soon. And there's a, a condition I have called post perf, post perfusion syndrome or pump head that is caused by bypass surgery. Um, when they put you on a bypass machine, it causes things in your head to go weird and it accentuates your depression and anxiety tenfold about six months after your surgery. So that's when I started my mental health journey is I had some wonderful co-workers that had an intervention and said, something's wrong. We need you to get help. So that's when I started with therapy and going to classes, learning about depression, anxiety, work stress, all sorts of things. And I had been in therapy. And then finally in 2019, I was a uh, primary dispatcher for an officer-involved shooting where my dispat or my deputy died, and uh, that was my first death um, on duty uh, in in my twenty seven years there. Um, so I lasted about a year before. Uh, I had a supervisor tell me that I needed to get help. She sat me down with workman's comp forms, told me to fill them out and make the calls that I needed to do. And on October 8th of 2020, my psychiatrist signed me out for PTSD or PTSI, rather. And uh, uh, my first first day out was was odd. just. With, I was going to, you know, how you have, you're prepared to do things. So I was prepared to retire in 2024. I wasn't prepared to retire when I did in 2021. And that was a really tough decision was, should I fight this? Should I try to go back to work? But in reality, um, no, when you've suffered that kind of injury, you you just can't you never know when you're going to pick up that phone and it's going to trigger something else and so i think for the for my health and for the health of the department it was was best for me to to take that retirement
0: okay now on on this show we talk about a lot of stuff that you don't really hear about on a lot of shows and the first one i talk about a lot is survivors guilt you know because and if you're in the military or if you're if you've been on the job we've all lost somebody whether it's on the job or whether it went at home we lose somebody and we're always thinking could i have done what could i have done what can i have done like for me i've i know i've helped hundreds of thousand of people thousands of people but it's the two that i lost that i couldn't help that affect me almost every day And also something that we don't talk about much is moral injury, because as a first responder, as a veteran, we see and we do shit that most people should never see or do. So those two things take a lot of people out because they're either dealing with the moral injuries or they're dealing with the memories or they're dealing with survivor's guilt. And then, like you said, you know, you were prepared to go out in 2024. Now you're out in 2021. And like Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. So, <laughs> exactly. You know, so what was it like? Because for me, I know I, I lost my vision. And all of a sudden, my career's gone. Uh, you know, I was in charge of men. I was in charge of hundred million vehicles. And now I'm sitting at home in a chair and i can't even cook my own food or wipe my own ass so you know what was it like the day and the week after realizing this is it this is my new normal
1: well that was a what i asked my psychiatrist i said you're signing me out to be in my own head i mean you know i you're giving me you're taking me from having a purpose to sitting in a room and at the time we were still on COVID lockdowns Mm. you know you're you're taking me from from being able to go outside to go to work to make a difference to sitting in a you know four square walls and and uh, what's that gonna do you know and i was only seeing her once a week so that was even worse so i've got six days (laughs) that i've got to try to deal with myself so what i did was i said i'm not gonna go down this deep dark hole anymore she signed me out and i said okay this is what we're going to do and i put myself on a schedule so i got up in the morning because i had been on graveyard for 19 years and So I was up every morning at eight o'clock and I, I still have blackout curtains in my bedroom, but what I did was I got up at eight and I opened up those curtains, brought in the light. I made sure that I was walking outside every day, not just on my treadmill, but getting outside in the sun. Um, And at the time I was signed out, my uh, grandson that I watch now, uh, he was just born. So, I was able to, and my my daughter in law went back to work. So I was able to do childcare for him. So I was watching him three and four days a week when he was little, which I think probably saved my life because I had a purpose. um, Where I don't think a lot of people have that, they just sit at home. Um, Another thing I did, and because my triggers are auditory rather than visual, um, I took away all the shows that I had been watching because you could hear dispatch in the backgrounds of those shows. So, all the Chicago, Chicago Fire, Chicago BD, Chicago Med, 911, uh, 911 Lone Star, those were my, my go to shows. They're gone. I don't watch them anymore because I was watching one show and I heard it in the background and it triggered me. And I said, I can't just go along on this anymore. So I got rid of all of those shows that were triggering. I started listening to, I don't know if they were self-help, but um, a lot of podcasts for first responders to regarding mental health and then working with my, my therapist to make sure that I was getting the the help I needed. Um, Also our peer support team at work uh, got me a scholarship to go to a trauma retreat, which was wonderful.
0: So then how did you meet Mr. Michael Seguru and how did you (sighs) do what you're doing now?
1: Well, actually, the, so we're going to go, let's see. I went to a critical incident stress management class through work in 20, I'm thinking it was in 2018, um, where I met a wonderful gal. She was sit, sat right next to me for the three-day course, and we kind of partnered up to do um, stuff in the class um she was from elk grove which is right near where i'm at and so we became friends and i met michael through her because she was very active in peer support and so i we're sort of i have never met michael in person one of these days we will actually get together for coffee and and chat but uh we're fast facebook friends and uh yeah
0: his, and his book is amazing. Um, I've had him on the show a couple of times. He's truly amazing. So, what made you start saying, "Okay, if I'm feeling this way, other people have to be feeling this way"? So, what was the impetus for that?
1: Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, when when you have this kind of when you have an officer-involved shooting, you get to know, I think, a lot of people that it went through the incident with you a little better. And as I was, as we were watching, because 2019 was a real crappy year for Northern California as far as a uh, loss of law enforcement, we lost quite a few uh, that year up here uh, in Davis and ours. Uh, I think Rancho Cordova lost one Sacramento Police lost one um, it was it was a real dangerous year up here and if I was going through this how was the dispatcher the dispatchers for each of those incidents what were they going through were they being remembered were they being taken care of Um so I kind of said, I, I didn't know what to do. So, and this was a, throughout 2020 through 2022, I was trying to figure out something that I could do to get the word out that people need to get help even before they have that trauma, you know, their first day of work. Within that first week, within that first month, people need to find a therapist and get to know, you know, so that you have that, that base to build on to not go through what I'm going through. So, I got a hold of First Help, which is an organization that helps uh, first responders. Um, and it's uh, suicide prevention. And I got a hold of one of the guys there, and I said, "Hey, you know, uh, what can I do to help you guys? Can I?" I'm. I said, "I'm a. I I love to teach. Do you guys have something that you're going around and and teaching people how to deal with mental health issues?" And he got me in touch with their podcast, uh, which is Beyond the First Response. And that was my very first podcast, and it felt really good to get my story out there and possibly help somebody. And I was like, okay, so now that I've did this one, everybody's going to hear, and somebody's going to call me and say, hey, can you do this, do this, and nothing. And I'm going, so it took me a couple months to realize, hey, you need to be the one, I need to be the one to go out there and take that big step again. So that's what I did. And so I've been going out and putting myself out there to all these podcasts and just getting my story out. Because eventually what I would love to do is go to these, what what are they? The top cop conventions where the police chiefs and the, and the sheriffs attend mm-hmm. every year and go in and talk to the guys at the top and say, you have a problem. You guys are the ones that need to do this. You guys need to go back to your departments and get these programs in place so that you're not losing people.
0: Now, I've had some of my friends that have come on recently, and one of them was a pilot in Afghanistan, Black Hawk Helicopters, and he said they started doing something called chair flying where before each mission they would pretend they were all sitting down in, in the cockpit and they would start talking about, well, what if this happens? You know, what if this happens? And if it, things did happen, they were already prepared that they knew, well, this is a, more likely, this is going to happen. So this is how they dealt, they deal with it. And he said it was a lot less people struggling with the pts because they knew what was possible what was likely to happen and they they could start dealing with it before it even happens Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts
1: well we try to do that you know as law enforcement you try to do that you try to 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 prepare for the inevitable but nobody prepares you for the mental health stuff I mean, you can be prepared to deal with, and I dealt with my shooting fabulously as far as I was concerned, you know. But the mental health stuff afterwards, nobody was there to teach me how to do that. Nobody, there's nothing in, there's nothing in policies and procedures in most departments that teaches you that mental health stuff. They teach you the technical stuff. You can be prepared for, you know, for a burglary, for a shooting, for, for this and this and this, but nobody teaches you how to mentally deal with that. And you can do all the preparation and and simulation and, and all of that you, you want, but nobody teaches you how to, combat the depression or even has a list of how to, you know, what treatments you can go to, to do for a trauma, you know, there's EMDR, there's brain spotting. There's a new one, ARC, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. Forgive me if I have that wrong. Um, The ganglion block now, Mm -hmm. which apparently is fabulous. I'm, I'm not, I don't qualify for that. So Um, but you know there's all of these treatments so that you can stay working but when you have a mental health injury the departments have a stigma and they deem you as crazy and they try to get rid of you
0: and yeah and i was i was just as you're talking i'm just thinking about it because i know you know mental health is a sexy subject to talk about um (laughs) you know but if you get like if me, if me and you were in a room together and we were serving together and I would say, you know what? I'm thinking about going to get help. Uh, I'm probably not going to, even though they, they say they're going to support you, I'm afraid of losing my spot. And I think it's still that way. I don't care what anybody says because if you get a bunch of alpha males and alpha females together and you <laughs> say, well, somebody somebody's going to take your spot You're going to be like, yeah, no. So, and and then you're forced to, like, you were forced to get out. So, do you think that's still part of what's going on?
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, there, there's some changes that are coming around, but there's still this stigma, you know, that nobody, somebody would, somebody like me would much, I I not even I was prepared to do this. Had I not been forced out, I probably would have been fired. Uh, but I think it's uh, I. What do you want to call it? Just yeah, being that alpha person, you don't want to show any weakness. But I think it's a, a. It takes a stronger person to admit that they they need help, and to try to stay there and be a functioning member of that department rather than just say nothing and be that person that drinks and then eventually eats their gun.
0: So then if, say, somebody's getting out of the military today, I think today's August 2nd, um, or if they're still on the police force and, you know, they want to get, they want to get their head right. Um, what are some steps they can to, do to start getting healthier mentally before they do end up as a statistic?
1: Um, and and like I tell people, get find a therapist. It's not shameful. Find somebody that you can talk to. It, um, you know, go have coffee with people. Go talk to people. Just... Uh, get your story out because that's part of releasing that trauma is talking about it. Um, An example is my mom's cousin was in Vietnam. And back then when they came home, we didn't talk about the problems they were having. Um, He had, he had issues and wanted to talk, but all the, People in the older generation didn't want us younger kids asking him what was wrong because they didn't want him to have to relive it or whatever. But I think getting your story out there, even if you take a laptop, open up a Word document and just start typing. Get it out of yourself. Don't pin it up. Um, it, because... Nobody's going to know how you feel until you tell them. I don't know if that's okay. Good. So, then, <laughs> you you're, know, I
0: just you're, you're, you're 100% right. But now let me ask you something else because, you know, uh, this is a teaching podcast. Um, but you now you've been a veteran, you've been a military spouse. Uh, You have an amazing husband, by the way, an amazing family and kids and grandkids. But, you know, my wife is my rock. She's my best friend. She's everything to me. And she didn't realize that I was struggling with PTS until we went to go see American Sniper. And there's a scene where Chris Kyle, and, and that's the reason why I wear this hat is not because I'm going bald, obviously but i promised chris kyle's wife that i would wear a hat on every show i do in honor of chris giving his life to somebody who's struggling with ptsd but once we we watching the scene where chris is watching the tv and there's nothing on the tv my wife looked at me and she said i get it now i get it i know i know you're hurting and you're struggling so what should a spouse of a law enforcement officer or first responder start looking for, and what can they do for their spouse?
1: Um, They should look for isolation, not wanting to be around family, not wanting to be around their friends, possibly addiction issues, uh, alcohol, drugs. um, Because you don't feel like there's people out there that understand that And so you tend to, I, and I find myself doing that every once in a while is isolating myself away from people. And when I find that I, I make sure I kind of (laughs) get out there and talk to people again. Um, I've never had a problem with addiction issues recently. Um, my, my ex-husband is an alcoholic and when I was married to him, I was on that way. Uh, but my husband now, um, you know, put the kibosh on that. We don't have alcohol in our house except to cook with. And, uh, um, you know, it just uh, changes in. Um, when you look at that person and you go, that's not the person I married. When the changes are that extreme, you know, look at them and, and ask them to get some help. You know, it's going to be a really rough ride because that first responder, that veteran doesn't want to admit that they need help. And they may not even admit it when it's the spouse doing it, but even the spouse can go to friends and family and say, hey, you know, find who his trusted person is and talk to that person. Have that person do an intervention. Interventions are great. They really are you know, especially when they're, you know, they're, they're not done with bad intentions. They're there to, to help that person.
0: And as a recovering addict, that's one (laughs) of the shows that one of the shows that I watch all the time. I've been, I've been clean and sober going on, going on 35 years now. So I love it. So what's, what's next coming up for Deborah and how do we find you and how do we support your mission?
1: Well, I basically, I'm just trying to find podcasts to get my story out. I've got uh, two more in the works and one possible, um, you know, and just I'm, you know, just being a grandma and (laughs) being a normal person for a while is kind of fun. Um,
0: Is there a book in the future? Well,
1: there might be. It's on my computer. It's more like my journal. And when I feel like talking about my, my incident, I go in and write a little bit here and there. I don't know if it'll ever get published, but you know, as far as writing out my, my stuff, it's, it's, it's moving along. I also do, um, a lot of art. So, you know, I have, I have that to. I don't like, wait, wait, where is it? Hold on. All right. Over (laughs) here. Yeah, right there. That's uh kind of what I do. Sorry. <laughs> I do uh thin thin blue line, thin red line, thin gold line paintings and give them to people, uh, depart- and departments and it makes me feel good and I do my sympathy cards to, to those that have lost. So lots of those go out. Um, so
0: obviously you're active on Facebook, and I think that's where we got to get. We, we yeah, started.
1: I do Facebook, I do Instagram, I do TikTok. I, I'm uh, TikTok now, I just do um, the thumbnails from the podcast that I've been on. Now, was so it
0: all is It all, Deborah Green?
1: Um, uh, Deborah Green, Debbie Green. Um, uh, my my handle on TikTok and Instagram is d911 green and i think uh my tiktok has a picture of a thin gold line flag okay um i have twitter but that's for me (laughs) that's my fun space um but yeah i do a lot on facebook and um you know i advocate for for mental health through various places you know i'm a member of uh NAMI um, also, um, Natural Association for Mental Illness, and trying to get more involved with them. And yeah, that's...
0: Well, I just want to say thank you. I know back and forth and me having to cancel because going to Atlantic City and doing stuff with my kids. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. And I appreciate you, everything you're doing and I hope we can build a generational relationship because that's what I like to do. So, oh, I just
1: yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. This has been great.
0: Well, when you tell when you see Richard, tell him I love his name. And I sure will. <laughs> Hi guys, as my T-shirt says, today I decide. And what that means is I'm a big Joel Osteen guy. And Joe says, Joel says, you can either be the victim or you could be the victor. So, guys, make sure that today you decide to be the victor and not be the victim anymore. I just want to say thank you, Deborah. Have an amazing week. Thank you. I love you guys. Dub Nation, Resilient Warrior Nation, love you guys. Remember, vertical momentum, the only way to go is up. I'll see you next week and have an amazing weekend and love each other. Deborah. have a great
1: week. Thank you. You too.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.